I wrote a book called Kids Say the Darnest Things, but you ought to hear what people say to me. Lady came up to me out here in the parking lot. I says, oh, Hartley Clutter says, you're one of my biggest fans. I said, yes, I am. I get everything twisted. Another lady early today, she says, you know you look better alive than you do on television? Some fella hasn't seen me. I've been off on a regular series for the last couple of years. He walked up to me into the airport. He says, hey, he says, didn't you used to be Art Linkletter? <laughs> the other day going down the street in New York City, I was on my way to a board of directors meeting and I wasn't thinking of anything particularly except the worries of the day and a little lady stopped me cold with a grip on my coat lapel and she said, you famous people can't just go by us everyday ordinary people without saying hello. We know you. We make you, you know, we make you. And I said, well, I'm terribly sorry. I said, I didn't mean to. She says, now, let's see. Who are you? I'll get you in a minute. And I'm looking down at her eyes. She says, it's not Lawrence Welk. No, it's not Lawrence Welk. And not Jack Benny. And I was in a hurry. I said, Art Linkletter. She says, no, it's not Art Linkletter. <laughs> and this ha happened at a world premiere about a month ago in Hollywood. I got out of the limousine and walked up the red carpet and the Klieg lights and the announcers and the cameras and the fans and the stars. And a little boy burst out from under the ropes, past the cops, came over and grabbed my hand. He says, you're Art Linkletter. And I said, that's right. He says, we're from Kansas City, and we've come out to see the stars. I said, well, that's good. He says, that's my sister over there. He says, she wants to meet Cher. He says, I don't care who I meet. And I'm shaking hands with him. But that's what makes people so wonderful and why I love them, because they're unpredictable, and you never know what people are going to say. And, of course, everyone asks me what the secret of my success in interviewing people has been through these 40 years. I love people. I'm interested in them. I really and truly want to know about them. And so when I ask them a question, it's not a smart-aleck question that's setting up something for me to capitalize on. I'm really curious to know who they are and what they think about and where they're going and why they're doing it. And, of course, the two best interviews in the world, <laughs> women over 70 and children under 10. And for the same reason, they're the only ones left who will tell you the truth. <laughs> Woman over 70 doesn't have anything more to conceal. She's lived it. She's going to tell it. Child under 10 doesn't know what they're saying. And they're the two best interviews. I'll get back to that in a moment, but I did want to comment on the fact that I grew up as a preacher's kid, a Baptist preacher's kid. I was an orphan. My maiden name was Kelly. And I was uh, born in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, away up in the plains of Canada. And there was a wandering, itinerant Baptist evangelist in his 50s came through that town. And I was an orphan. And he adopted me. And I became a link letter. And I grew up as a PK. And I wonder how many PKs we have here in the house tonight. Everybody was a PK. Well, I tell you, it's an entirely different kind of a world. <laughs> They've got you up on a pedestal. And... Uh, You've got to fight your way down and out of through it. I had more fistfights than, than Cassius Clay or Ali or whatever he calls himself, proving I was a regular kid. And, of course, my father was a wonderful old-fashioned Baptist preacher who, for instance, when he gave grace at the table, blessed everything that he could think of in the entire world. I was 19 before a bite of hot food ever passed my lips. But leave home. And, you know... He used me in his church services. The first audiences I've ever faced in my life was when my father would give his, give his sermon and he'd call me up and I was a scrawny-looking little miserable child and he'd say, this is my little adopted boy, Artie. 
And the way he eats and grows and the way that frail body will fill out depends upon the offering today. I don't know what you got, but I can guess within a dollar of what it was. I can look out over an audience and know immediately, unless there are Baptists there, then I'm not quite sure, because they're sneaky, you know. They'll wave $10 and put in a quarter. I'm kidding because I'm a Baptist. I'm the one who can kid the Baptist. My father's favorite sermons, he was an old-fashioned fundamentalist preacher. He wasn't interested in philosophy or theosophy or international affairs, civil rights. He was interested in scaring sinners into heaven. And when he gave one of his favorite sermons, which is, What is Hell? At the end of the sermon, you could smell the brimstone in the church. It was right there. Never forget one time, the sign out in front of the church, they put several signs up. It says, Brother Linkletter, Sunday, What is Hell? And underneath it says, come and hear our new organist. <laughs> of course, through the years, proving that people are funny and that kids say the darndest things, I've had most fun, I suppose, with youngsters from four to ten. And I've interviewed them five days a week, 52 weeks a year for 25 years. I have people come up to me now who look to me like old graybeards. I'm startled and disconsolate when a great, big, mature guy comes up like a captain of an airliner I'm flying on. He says, Mr. Linkler, I was on your show when I was four years of age. Does nothing for my confidence in his flying. Because the minute that happens to me, and it's happened several times lately, I think back to a little boy, about six, who was on my show one day, and I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? He says, I want to be an airplane pilot and fly all over the world. And so I played a game with him. I said, now, supposing you're a pilot on a DC-10 and you're flying across the ocean to Honolulu, 36,000 feet high, 600 miles an hour, all four engines stop when you're halfway to Honolulu. What do you do? And this little six-year-old said, well, first, I think I'd get on that microphone there in the captain's place, and I'd tell everybody to fasten their seatbelts. I said, very good idea. Then what would you do? Well, he says, I'd put on my parachute and jump out. <laughs> well, of course, everybody laughed. And I'm sitting right next to him on stage, and I see tears welling up in his eyes because he's horrified at this response. He's shocked. And when the laughter died down, he said, I'm coming back. He says, I'm going for gas. <laughs> That's the wonderful thing about children. They have this faith, and it's a faith we too often lose as we get older in life. I like the four-year-olds best. They don't even know what's going on. Many times after a program was over, the four-year-olds would come off, and one of them would come up to me and say, Mr. Winkwetter? i say, yes. he said, when does the show start? i said, what do you think that was out there? You know, the little ones, they answer everything <laughs> such surprising and frank terms. A little boy had a Mickey Mouse watch on one time, and I said, I'm a little five-year-old. I said, oh, what time does your watch say? He says, doesn't say anything. You've got to look right at it. Another little boy, I said, what do you like best in the world? He says, our pet. I said, what is it? He says, dog. Well, I said, does it have a pedigree? He says, no. We had it cut off two weeks ago. <laughs> Another little five-year-old, I said, do you get an allowance? He says, what's that? <laughs> well, I said, an allowance is money you get for being a good boy. Well, he says, I guess I do. He says, I get a nickel every day I have a dry bed. <laughs> and I... I said, that's wonderful. How much do you make this summer? He says, nothing. <laughs> if you pardon the expression, the summer was a washout. 
But I must tell you, being a preacher's kid, I always looked forward to the times on the house party when we were having a holiday, like Thanksgiving or Christmas or summer holidays, and instead of going to the public schools, which we did for our children, picked by each teacher in each class, we had nothing to do with, with who was picked or what they said. Oh, and by the way, all the parents who got the notes from the school saying, please excuse Junior, he's going to be on Art Linkletter's program in three weeks or whatever it was, signed, they always immediately jumped to the conclusion that their child was picked because he was the brightest, most wonderful boy in the school. And I never had the nerve to tell those parents that generally the teacher picked them because they were the one they most liked to have out of the class for a few blessed hours. And of course, that was proved by the fact that when they did come on the program and I asked them little questions about what their mother and daddies did and all that sort of thing, and they answered, people moved away and relocated all over the United States under other names. But when we had the Sunday school children and the church school children during the holidays was what I looked forward to because I loved to talk to them about the Bible. And as you know, children who go to Sunday school don't always listen. <laughs> in fact, one little boy had a pin on him. I said, what's that for? He says, I haven't missed Sunday school in two years. I said, what's your favorite Bible story? He says, Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> but they do have some strange ideas about the Bible. One little fellow says, I like the story in the Old Testament about President Lincoln. I said, what did President Lincoln do? He says, well, God told President Lincoln to take his only son and go up into the hills and to build an, idol, uh, an altar and put his only son on the altar and he was to sacrifice him for the... I said, President Lincoln? He says, yeah, you know, Abraham. <laughs> put the whole thing together. Just jumped from one century to back before the birth of Christ. And then, of course, they do have some interesting deductions as to what Bible stories are all about. For instance, one of my favorite little boy, I said, what's your favorite Bible story, young man? He said, I like the story of David and Goliath. I said, how did it go? He says, well, it was this little guy who was being bugged by this big guy, and he couldn't stand it any longer, so he took a rock and he put it in his slingshot, and he slung it around his head four times, and he let it go, and bang, it hit Goliath right in the forehead, and he fell over dead. And I said, well, that's approximately what the Bible says, but all these stories teach us something about life. They have a moral they have an idea back of them. Now, what do we learn from that story? Unhesitatingly, he said, duck. <laughs> Thinking of Goliath. On the other hand, a little girl thinks entirely differently. One little girl said, I like the story of Noah and the Ark, where all the animals went in two by two in this big boat before they had the rain. I said, yeah, that was a good story. I said, what do we learn from that? She says, you better be married or you'll be left behind. One of my favorite stories, I must tell you, there were some Catholics here, weren't there tonight? Let's see the hands of the Catholics who were here. There are a few of them. I had four children from a Catholic school on, and there was a five-year-old, blonde, blue-eyed doll. Looked like she should have had a key in the back to wind up. Just a perfect little doll with a lisp. And uh, she, I said to her, well, honey, what is your favorite Bible story? She says, I like the story of Edom and Av. I said, oh, what was that? She says, two bare people who lived in a public park. <laughs> I said, well, what were they doing? Typical Beverly Hills kid. She says, they kept the pool clean. <laughs> I said, well, what happened then? She says, they got in trouble with God. She says, the lady 
kept eating the cherries off the bush, and they hide it under a park bench, but God found them, and he punished them twice. Now, that really intrigued me, a five-year-old. I said, he punished them twice? What did he do? Why, she said, first he threw them both straight down into hell. I said, terrible. Then what did he do? Why, she said, and then he turned them into Protestants. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, this was during the Kennedy administration, so we were safe. But you know, children have such great faith. I was talking about faith a few minutes ago. The little ones have such great faith. Marvelous story with a, in, a, in a Sunday school class. Uh, they, they said, draw anything you want in the Bible. So the teacher was going down the aisle. The little boy was drawing away, and she says, what are you drawing? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the, t- the teacher says, well, nobody knows what God looks like. He says, they will in a minute. I'll be through here. I'll be right through. That's faith, brother. Or the little boy who comes in from the backyard, and his mother says, where have you been, what have you been doing, Johnny? He says, I've been out and back playing ball with God. Well, she said, you shouldn't say something like that. That's terrible. He says, that's what I was doing. I was out and back playing ball with God. She says, how do you do that? Well, he says, you just take a ball, and you go out there, and you throw it up, and you wait a second. God throws it right back down to you. <laughs> you know, that's faith. It's a wonderful thing. And the kids write letters to God. I had a whole book published of mine. The one I loved was a little girl wrote to God. She says, Dear God, are boys smarter than girls? She says, I know you're one, but be fair now. (laughs) But the ultimate in all sermons, in all preachments, in all things of faith was the little boy who just wrote this brief sentence. He says, Dear God, count me in, your friend, Herbie. And that's a wonderful thing. Count me in. So many of us forget to do that. And we're busy with life. We're all surrounded by everything that the author wrote about in Future Shock, Mr. Alvin Toffler, who told about how we're living in a time when things are coming upon us faster than we can stand. Even the human central nervous system, made up of billions of cells, the most adaptable animal in the history of the whole evolutionary cycle, is unable to take care of the changes that are occurring today. Everything is moving so fast. Things are plastic. Things are artificial. Things are here and gone. And we're living lives that are so fraught with anxieties and tensions and stress that today there are 35 million Americans who are suffering, whether they know it or not, from hypertension, which will lead to strokes and heart attacks. Millions and millions of Americans are unable to be cared for in the mental asylums and in the in the guidance clinics and in the psychological clinics because of the emotional and psychological problems that have beset them. We have more vandalism, more juvenile delinquency, more everything that is a result of this packed-in, fast life of ours than ever before in history. And, of course, I was first made truly aware of that some six years ago when, after all my life of walking on the sunny side of the street with fame, with fortune, with fun and excitement, everything you could dream about if you sat down in your wildest nightmare and drew a blueprint for an exciting life was mine. And then, in one instant, it was all changed. I was in Colorado Springs getting ready to speak to the Air Force Academy. And I had a telephone call from Los Angeles from my lawyer who said, Art, I have bad news for you and I'm just going to say it quickly, your daughter Diane has killed herself. 
And with those words, my life changed, the world changed, because she was the baby of the family. She was the 19-year-old sweetheart. She was a little girl with more talent than all the other members of the family, the one that everybody loved instinctively, the bright, happy, lovely one for whom life was opening like the petals of a flower. She and I, the year before, had made a record which won the Grammy Award of the year for the best talking record in the United States. And it was a record called We Love You, Call Collect. And it was an appeal to the runaways of the 60s who were spreading across the land as flower children in the faraway communes of Haight-Ashbury and other places to at least phone their mother and father and tell them where they were and to stop the heartbreak and the sorrow and the shock of parents whose loved ones had vanished into the night. And she and I had made that record, and it had swung its way across the record counters of the country to the number one position. She had just come back from a coast-to-coast tour on behalf of a sponsor and uh, had been interviewed, and I had letters from ministers and from school principals saying, I heard your lovely daughter Diane on the radio today or saw her on television. You should be proud of what she says about the youth of today against drugs, against excesses, a marvelous, beautiful girl. And she was the one of all of my children who took her own life in a moment of gigantic bewilderment and confusion and despair after being engulfed in one of those mind-shattering trips that the totally unpredictable drug, LSD, delivers and has delivered to so many of our children. Here was a drug that was in. It was the in thing to do. And she was not a drug addict. She didn't need the support or the chemical crutch of a drug. She was a victim of what the sociologists call peer pressure, a very fancy erudite way which really means don't be chicken, be regular, be one of the gang. That's what peer pressure is all about. That's why kids get in cars and go out and play chicken with each other on lonely highways and their bodies are found in the ditch in the morning. That's why kids run away and smoke grass and get drunk and do lots of things. Good kids who don't need that kind of thing, but they want to be regular. And as a preacher's kid, I should have been aware of the fact that there's more pressure on the well-known member of a community, like a preacher's kid, to be regular than on anybody else. And a star's kid in Hollywood especially does not want to be singled out and set apart from everyone else. A boy or a girl, either one, wants to be part of the group. Everybody wants to be part of the group. And so she paid with her life for being part of the group. For at a big Hollywood party of youngsters her own age, when they said, oh, don't be chicken, Diane. Try some of this stuff. It's the greatest trip in the world. Why people like, like the great poet Ginsberg, the great psychiatrist, Dr. Timothy Leary, the great English author Aldous Huxley, who wrote the book Doors of Perception. All of them say that hallucinogenics give you a trip that you will never have until you're in heaven. It's like a religious trip. You will see sights and sounds and smell and hear things that you will never uh, experience in life. And it's a wonderful and glorious trip. And seduced by this kind of talk and curious and anxious and interested, she took some of the LSD and then, with the flashback, days and days later after the original trip, she thought she was going out of her mind and leaped out of the window of her apartment house. And that, as I say, was the watershed of my life because when you are struck down by a tragedy, 
so devastating that no words can adequately describe it. You have to do one of two things. You either have to retreat inside the shell of your own life and there, steeped in bitterness and vengeful thoughts, uh, have life curdle within you, or you strike out and you do something positive. And Norman Vincent Peale telephoned me. He and I had been on a number of uh, platforms together. And he said, Art, now is the time for you to take the platform that you've spent almost 40 years building, the platform of trust and confidence of the American family and the American public, and tell them that it is in the American family and it is in a belief in God and it is in a feeling that we are all in some way responsible for everyone else that you can go out and do the most good. And so I began. And of course, one of the first things I learned was that being the victim of a tragedy does not make you an expert. I had all the prejudices. I had all the misinformation. I knew all the myths about drug abuse that the average middle-class American was subjected to. Everything to me was black and white. A person who used drugs or had anything to do with drugs was a bad person. A person who didn't was a good person. And of course, no one is either all bad or all good, and nothing is either black or white. And just as in the drug scene, millions of American youth have tried drugs, are not bad, they're curious, or they're lonely, or they're frustrated, or they're angry, or they're going to do it because their girlfriend or their best boyfriend does it. And these kids, most of them, never go on to being drug addicts or drug abusers. They're like my generation. I grew up in the 20s. My high school class was 1929 in the middle of the Depression. And anybody who graduated from that high school in San Diego who hadn't had a thimbleful of beer wasn't grown up. And, of course, when you had a thimbleful, you drank it down and fell over dead drunk because that's what you thought you were supposed to do immediately. And, of course, today, kids have got to smoke that joint of pot. They've got to try that marijuana. They have to sniff that glue or do something to prove that they have grown up, that they have machismo, that they're strong, that they're bold, that they're brave. And there's where the problem comes because when I was young and we smoked our cigarette or took a little beer or some, in my case, sacramental wine or occasionally out of the church, uh, the worst that could happen would be a headache or a hangover for a moment or an upset stomach. But today, just as the armaments of the nation have taken us from the bow and arrow to the nuclear warhead, today, when the youngsters experiment with some drugs, they are experimenting with mental and spiritual dynamite because a speck of LSD not big enough to cover the head of a pin can in some cases and has in many cases driven beautiful children into destruction, not necessarily death, but has made them catatonic, unable to speak for months, has fractured their personalities and ripped wide open tiny cracks in their psyches, which was there but was never revealed before, and sent them into life uh, entirely different than would have been the case if they hadn't tried it. So they're fooling around now with not just dynamite, but atomic power when it comes to drugs. I found all this out and many, many more things. I traveled all over the world. I visited drug scenes in far-off Golden Triangle in Thailand and Burma. I was in Turkey where they grow and ship almost 80% of the morphine, the opium, which becomes morphine in Syria and then is shipped to Marseille and becomes heroin and then is shipped to the United States 
and cut and sold as heroin on the streets of this country. $200 worth of opium in Turkey for a kilo. That's two and a half pounds of, mo of opium becomes worth twenty and thirty and forty thousand dollars in New York City on the streets when it's cut twenty and thirty times. When they buy heroin, which is two percent heroin and, and ninety-eight percent junk, quinine, rat poison, strychnine, sugar powder, and anything else that goes to dilute and make the stuff uh, less potent. And so I found these things out, and I talked to hundreds of young people in hotlines and on crash pads and in halfway houses and in jails and, in, and I've seen them in the morgues and I've talked to their mothers and fathers. And of course, what this has done for me is to give me a tolerance and an understanding and a love for our young people that I never had before because to me, young people are always fun to kid around with and laugh with and, and interview and, and do stunts and tricks with. And now, of course, being out where they were hurting, I began to have a love for them and an understanding for them that I never had before. And of course, I found out that most of them were not bad at all. Most of them were either, if they were in serious trouble, were either lacking confidence in themselves and the world around them, or more often, lacking in love. And I discovered that our young people today, unfortunately, miss something in the families that we used to have. And it's not the family's fault insofar as wanting to have this missing. It's our lives that are different. Fifty years ago, children were needed and wanted for different reasons than they are today. Today, they fit into a vast, complex, kaleidoscopic civilization in which everybody's living in his own compartmentalized life. You take a, a family of five at home in a living room. Most of the time, they're watching television. They're not talking to each other. There's no family entertaining. They aren't around a piano singing or praying or reading the Bible or playing games or just asking each other what they think about things. Are they worried? Are they concerned? Are they dreaming of something that they can't get? Do they have a grievance that they've never had a chance to explore? They're looking at the idiot tube all the time, six and a half hours a night. And I think television is great. But like everything else, if it isn't in moderation, it's in trouble. And recently, a team of two sociologists took a, with the permission of the people, took a tape recorder and put it in the homes of several thousand average American families with children from 12 to 20 years of age. And they just had long playing tapes that recorded everything that went on in the home. And when they correlated and computerized all these tapes, they discovered that the average American family in this cross-section sample had meaningful conversation or prayer or thoughtful discussions a total of 17 minutes a week. 17 minutes a week. The rest of the time was consumed with conversation that had to be talked about, of course, chores and allowances and who could do this and who wanted to do that and television and sports and the, who was going to have the family car and the rest of it. But today we need more than ever before to have the interpersonal relationships that come from caring and loving and communication between families. And I could stand here tonight and tell you for five hours I could speak without even a second thought about drug abuse. I could go through all the classifications of drugs. I could give you the percentages of what is happening and how it's happening. I could give you the history of how first we attempted harsh draconian, stiff laws to prevent people from doing drugs, no good. How we built jails and put kids and older people into jails, 
did no good. How we hired more policemen and more narcotics officers and built bigger walls, so to speak, around our country to prevent the inflow of drugs did no good. I could tell you about psychiatrists who have various and sundry ways of analyzing and psychoanalyzing people who are into drugs or people who are detoxification experts and rehabilitation experts. But I'm not going to talk about any of those things because they're all to one side. The most important thing when it comes to drug abuse is the fact that human beings are hurting in some way. And in order to avoid hurting, which nobody wants to do, they do something to strike out at life or to search for something more meaningful or interesting or fulfilling, and they do it in a variety of ways. They commit vandalism, they get drunk, they get into drugs, they get into sexual orgies, they run away, or of course, the eventual cop-out of life, which is suicide. Drugs happens to be quicker, cheaper, more effective, and more available than any of the others. If you have a problem, all you have to do is drop a couple of barbs, a couple of downers, and life just smooths out and all the wrinkles kind of vanish. But do they vanish? Well, does putting a Band-Aid on a cancer take care of the cancer? Just hides it for a while. When you take the Band-Aid off, there's the cancer, worse than before because it's gone unattended. And so drugs do that for people who have psychological and emotional or spiritual problems. Beautifully, with fun and excitement and quickly, it smooths out the wrinkles of life, but only like you sweep dirt under a rug. It's there when the drug wears off. And so when you contemplate the fact that human beings are looking for some surcease from the tremendous pressures and tensions of life, you come upon a variety of wonderful, positive alternatives. Now, of course, the first thing that I preach to most people is the positive alternative of love. Loving one another, families caring and understanding about hurts and being open to discussing it and not putting kids or anyone else down if they've made a mistake. The one thing that most kids in trouble with drugs have told me when I ask them when you got into trouble with drugs, why didn't you go to your mother and father? Invariably, the answer was, they'd kill me. Which meant, of course, they'd put them down, they'd blast them, they'd throw them out. Some of them call the cops and bust them. Some of them threaten to take away all their privileges for six months, and so on and so forth. Instead of sitting down and saying, how did you happen to use drugs? What have you used? Tell me about it. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. You're my dearest possession on the earth and I want to I want to understand why you think you need to use drugs why you are going back to them again D don't you feel loved don't you feel comfortable are your grades bad does your girl hate you didn't you make the basketball team do you feel that you're inferior to other people have you been unjustly treated find out what's inside that head instead of knocking him down and also parents should say you know son I can understand why you'd do it. Probably if I were your age, I might be curious and try it a time or two. But let's talk now about some of the dangers of playing Russian roulette, which is what you're doing when you're taking a psychoactive hallucinogenic drug. You're putting that bullet, that gun to your head, and you're pulling the trigger with lots of laughs and lots of fun as long as the empty chambers are being punctured. But sometime sooner or later, the bullet's going to be there. So let's talk about the dangers and the odds and the angles and the repercussions of that kind of a situation and then get in 
to an understanding talk about how we can make things a little better. That's the real answer, the love and care and communication. The next thing I tell people about, forget about the laws and forget about threatening and penalties. Let's talk about the kid's goals in life. Let's talk about whether or not he wants to be on an athletic team or sing in a wonderful choir or whether he wants to have a stamp collection or go on a camping trip. Some beautiful, positive alternative where he can think life has a high. Life has tremendous highs. I freak out on skiing or swimming or surfing or tennis or any of the thousand things depending upon the kid. Have a goal, have a motivation, have a positive alternative. And then, of course, having said those two things, I come down to the real nub of the whole thing, and that is, what do you have inside of you, son? Do you feel empty? Do you feel at times that nobody in the world is your friend? Do you feel that there isn't any, why are you here on this earth? Is there any reason for being here? What's going to happen to you? Why do we go through all of these daily chores and, and, and defeats and frustrations? What's going to happen? And then we come to the nub of the matter, and that is, do you have Jesus in your heart? Do you accept him? Do you know that he's there? Do you know that 24 hours a day, you have a hotline to God? You don't have to go and phone the community recreation center and have an ombudsman explain to you that things are going to be all right and is there some agency of the government to which we can send you for help? You have a hotline right in your heart because if a person believes in God and gives himself a chance to be helped, he finds an amazing thing, and that is that these problems which have sent him to drugs and kept him on drugs are going to be aided and softened and helped and smoothed out by the presence of a friend who's there 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day, 52 weeks a year, and that, of course, is the part about drug fighting which is most effective, which is most persistent, which is most permanent. Everything else that I've seen in the entire armory of defensive weapons against drug abuse is temporary. A person is arrested. He is now not on drugs, and we hope and pray that nothing will happen to him so he'll go back onto drugs, either the loss of a loved one or the loss of his job or some other fancied or real hurt in life which will send him back into that wonderful chemical cave that he knows is there because it's up here where the drug addiction really takes place, not in the body. You see these people kicking cold turkey, contorted, dancing around with their legs jerking, vomiting, going through the sweats of all of the physical withdrawal pains of a drug. That's nothing. That's over in the worst two weeks. The worst thing is up here between his ears in his head where he has forever imprisoned the thought, I know a cave, and when life gets too tough, I know where I can crawl into that cave and pull it in after me, and that cave is cocaine and heroin and uppers and downers and amphetamines and hallucinogenics. Whatever it is, it's the habituation from the mental knowledge that that is a place of refuge that will send that cured ex-drug addict back into drug addiction at any time of his life unless he has something not up here but right here. And that's where it counts. And so I come and I talk to people like you who believe in God, many of you may not. And I tell you from experience, from practical, down-to-earth knowledge, from traveling around the world and seeing this, that it works. It's not just a miracle out of the Old Testament or the New Testament or any part of the Bible. It's a miracle right now. And I have seen $150-a-day heroin addicts 
impossible medically for them to kick that habit without all kinds of medication and being strapped down and going through from five to ten days of horrors to kick that habit. And I have seen them accept Christ and go through that terrible period without a moment's worry or bother and become cleansed of their habit because of this belief. And that, I maintain, is a modern miracle that I have seen happen and know can happen. And even though none of you may be into drugs, you have other problems. You may be addicted to other things that you may not even think of as addiction. You may be a coffee-holic. You may be a workaholic. You may be, as in my case, almost incurable, cherry pie a la mode-aholic. <laughs> but whatever it is, you have a hang-up. And if you have a hang-up and you want to get rid of it permanently and be blessed by a new serenity and happiness and love in your heart, Jesus Christ is the answer.